Hey, we're going to be in John uh, 17 today. We are in a season called Lent, uh, which is just, you know, um, it's a helpful time, you know, leading up to the celebration of Easter to remind us how much we need Easter, right? Like, uh, we need Easter. We need um, Resurrection. There's not a square inch of all of creation that doesn't long for resurrection. And so as we, as we get ready for that celebration, Lent is a season to remind us how much we need it, that we are sinful, that we are mortal, and that there's wisdom in acknowledging this. So this time of year, it's just the thing that we think about. And, and what we're doing this year is we're going through John 17. John 17 is um, one of the chapters that John dedicates, one of the four or five chapters that John dedicates, this guy that traveled around and was kind of in Jesus' inner circle, and he dedicates several chapters. He only wrote 21. He dedicates five of them to this one evening. And uh, one of the chapters, chapter 17, is this prayer that Jesus prayed. Um, and so we've been walking through it, this prayer. It occurs uh, at this feast, uh, during the, the weekend of this feast that they celebrated every year to commemorate God saving Israel, uh, the Jewish people out of slavery in Egypt, the Passover. Uh, and this is the night before that he's crucified. And he gets down and he washes the disciples' feet and then he teaches them and he comforts them about what's about to happen. Uh, you know, his arrest to this sham trial that's going to happen, the crucifixion, uh, and then his death uh, at the hands of the religious leaders and the political leaders at the time, the political, the political authorities of Rome. And he actually is comforting him and saying, listen, uh, the bad thing that's about to happen, and it's going to be way worse than you guys think it is. <laughs> You're not prepared for how rough this is going to be. Uh, but this bad thing that's about to happen, believe it or not, it's going to turn out for your good. It's actually going to be good for you that these things happen. And then he prays, and that's what chapter 17 is. He starts off by praying the first five verses uh, that, that God is glorified in what's about to happen, that a big deal is made of God in what he's about to do. And then he prays for his disciples. The rest of the chapter is him praying for the disciples. He prays to the Father that he, that they, he keeps them from evil. He prays uh, that he to God that they are unified. He prays that they are sanctified, uh, that they're consecrated, um, um, set apart for a specific purpose, um, that they are uh, dedicated to this one thing. Um, you know, we, we, we do this, we wholly commit to things, and that's what he prays for them, that they're wholly committed to this one way. Um, we're wholly committed probably to the thing that makes us feel okay. For example, uh, if you find yourself regularly glancing at your portfolio, Right? If you're constantly like looking at like see how much money is there, like if something bad happens, I mean, if you're constantly glancing there, that's the thing that makes you feel okay, and you're wholly committed to making sure that that thing stays safe. And so that that type of thing is what we we are committed to. And he prays that they're wholly consecrated to God and into following Jesus down this path. Uh, and then today we're going to look at this end of this amazing prayer. And before we, we look at it, I need to uh, make you at least aware uh, of the idea of the Trinity. You've you got to understand the Trinity, or at least understand is strong. Uh, you, you have to at least understand that Christians believe this thing. And what we believe is that there is one God. We hold to this. We would not va- Christians do not vary from this position. There is one God. Also, this one God has 
revealed himself to us in three persons, right? The first person, the Father, the second person, the Son, and the third person, the Holy Spirit. So we believe in this, this three in one. Uh, and so I know that's a complicated thing. Trust me, we've been talking about it for near on 2,000 years now. It is difficult to understand. It's mysterious. Uh, but if God wasn't a little above us, it would be odd, right? Uh, he's God and we are not. So we have to understand that what, that is a thing that Christians believe to understand this passage at all. Uh, and so let's just, let's, let's, let's just read this passage. This is the end of it. I'm going to read 20 through 26. This is the end of Jesus' prayer. I do not ask for these only, talking about the disciples in the room, uh, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. So this prayer is for you and for me, if you are a follower of Jesus. Uh, not only for these in the room, but those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you've sent me. The glory that you have given me, I've given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me, because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you've sent me. I made known to them your name. I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. This is a prayer for us. It's a prayer for all of the disciples, all the followers of Jesus. This is what Jesus... um, one of the things that, uh, if you grew up in a Christian, if you grew up in a church, uh, one of the things that, that uh, probably happened is that people would ask you all the time, like, uh, hey, what can I pray for you? People ask me that sometimes. Hey, what can I be praying for you? And depending on who you are, I'll give you different answers, right? Like if I don't really know you, I'll be like, uh, wisdom, just pray for wisdom for me. Like, if I really know you well, though, and I actually believe you're going to go pray for me, I might be like, hey man, listen, we need to talk. <laughs> like, I got some things that you need to pray for me about. Uh, so, and also, if I believe that you have some kind of, I don't know, man, there just seem to be people who have like a direct line to God. You know what I'm talking about? They, in the church, the tradition I grew up in, they're called prayer warriors. I don't know why, but like, uh, they just think, like, I don't know, we were for them. Like, yeah, like you pray for us. And so like, if I, if I thought that God answers your prayers, that you actually believe in the power of the Holy Spirit in prayer, I'm gonna tell you some different things. Like, I, there's things that I need. Here's the deal. Uh, if I think God's listening to you, man, I want you praying for me. This is Jesus praying. Like, like what, Jesus came to you and said, hey, what do you want me to pray for you? Right? Like, that'd be a weird thing, right? I think, you, I think if you're smart, you go like, uh, I feel like you would know better than me what I need to be prayed for, right? And he, yeah, I got you. This is it. This is what he would pray for you. This is what he does pray for you. Now he prays other things. I think he still intercedes for us as part of scripture. But this is what he prays for you. This prayer. And it's amazing. 
And, and, it, and it goes back and forth. It hinges on this idea of being in Christ. Jesus asked the Father uh, that what he wants for his disciples is for them to be in, his Father, I want them to be in us and that they might be one. In, in a similar way to how he and the Father are one, he wants them to be united and also that they might be somehow mysteriously be in us, that we might somehow be connected to the actual life of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, uh, by being in Christ. Uh, this phrase, in Christ, uh, it's all over the New Testament. It's pretty critical, clearly important in, in this prayer, being in Christ. Uh, matter of fact, Paul uses it almost incessantly. Like, I think if you ask Paul, like, who are you? What are you? Like, are you a Jew? Are you Roman? Citizen, uh, what are you? Uh, are you a preacher? I think Paul would answer, I'm, I'm in Christ. I think that's a foundational answer uh, for Paul. The foundational thing is, uh, you can understand me as having been raised Jews and being Jewish and being part of, part of the nation of Israel, but foundationally, I'm in Christ. I understand my Jewishness through that. I understand my citizenship with Rome through the lens of being in Christ. I, it's just all over his writing. Before he was anything else, he would have said that he was in Christ. So to... Let's try to understand what this means because I, what Jesus in the New Testament are, are try, seem to be trying to do is to explain a type of union, a type of bond, um, being linked together, being, being locked in so tightly to a relationship that there's really no substantive difference between the participants. That when you look at one, you see the other. Um, so uh, earlier in John, uh, Jesus said uh, in John 5, uh, 19, he said that the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. Whatever the father does, the son does likewise. So Jesus is not going to do anything. In fact, cannot do anything that the father wouldn't do. That's how closely united they are. They're locked in so tightly that their ways of thinking and feeling and being are the same. What Jesus has been saying uh, is that when you saw me heal the sick, when you saw me cast out demons, when you saw me hanging out with the poor, when you saw me loving the outsider, when you saw me attracting sinners and condemning empty religious leaders and rule following, you, you saw what God was doing, what God is like. When you heard me teach about holiness and love, you were hearing God teach about holiness and love. We are that united. When you saw me act, you saw what God is like. Like That is his heart. We're one. We are locked in together. Uh, uh, in verse 41, he says, you, Father, are in me and I am in you. That's, that's what it means. They're, they're so locked in on each other. Also just, it means that they're focused on each other. Right? God, the Father, seems really committed to glorifying the Son, and the Son seems 100% committed to glorifying the Father. They're, they're locked in on the other other one. That's what it means for them to be in one another. So we are to be in Christ. So for us to be in Christ is in some way uh, analogous to this. It can't be the exact same because, you know, we're not members of the Trinity, right? Like we're not divine. So we can't be the exact same thing. But in some way, there's an analogy of us being tied together and to Christ in this same way, so locked in that we wouldn't do or even want to do anything that Jesus wouldn't.
And everything that he does or wants to do, or we would be so locked in that we would want to do it and would go and do it as well. Our thinking and our feeling and our being are the same. Our heart beats like his. That's his prayer. This is the joy that he has come to bring and to show and to bring alive and to be real inside of us. And then we're to be locked in on each other. See, we're invited in this type of relationship that Jesus has with the Father. We are invited into this intercommitment, right? Focused on Jesus. Jesus so focused on us, locked in on us, and we in return learning to be locked in on him, wholly focused on him and his glory. I think that maybe what helped me a little bit this week in, in thinking through this sum and trying to get a handle on this was like, what else would you be in, right? To be in Christ? Like, what else could you possibly be in if, it's not, if you're not in Christ? And, and the Bible gives, actually talks about that. Uh, there's actually being in the world. That's, a matter of fact, biblically speaking, that's the only other option. You're either in Christ or you are in the world. Uh, those are your choices. Uh, so to be in the world would mean... Uh, that your thinking and your feeling and your being is shaped by what the world is doing. That you are so locked in and joined in with something other than Christ, whether you know it or not, that that's how your heart beats. That's the thing you care about. That you care for the good pleasures of this world or even sadder, the worries of this world over Christ. I know it's hard to believe that people might be more concerned about, be more obsessed with the worries of this world than Christ, but uh, it's kind of all of us, right? Like the worries of the world so consume us and we come so, become so consumed with handling these things that we find ourselves shaped by them instead of shaped by Christ. It's not just the pleasures of the world, but the worries of the world that draw us away. And that's what it means to be in the world, to be shaped by those things. Let me give you an uncomfortable example. Uh, these days, it seems that politics are shaping people. Now, politics aren't necessarily bad. Uh, but two things. One, let me say this. If you're primarily getting or solely getting your news source from the TV, that's not a serious place to get your TV, by the way. News, by the way. Uh, that's... That, uh, it's... The, it's become entertainment designed to make you angry and rile you up because that's how you'll watch the commercial, right? It's driven by fear. Uh, if you want to have a conversation with this about me, first read Neil Postman's uh, Entertaining Ourselves to Death, and then I'll be glad to have that conversation with you if you want to disagree. But uh, I believe that it's just entertainment. And, but some people get so locked into this idea that it's serious and so consumed by it that that becomes who they are. They interpret everything through it. They become shaped by it. Or America. We, we, this being in the world, it, it's so easy to, get, to slip into, I must have what is new. Do, look away from the newest iPad Pro and know that I know when the new one's coming out. It, we become consumed that we need the newest and the best, that we need, that we can take care of ourselves, that we can control these things, that we find our identity in ourselves. We become so caught up in these ideas that are just American that those become the things that shape us. That's being in the world. You can recognize it very often by its results in your life. 
The results of being in the world are almost always, at some level, fear and anxiety, a restlessness, a constant drive that can't let us be still. We are possibly entertaining ourselves to death, to use a guy named Neil Postman's phrase. Constant need of distraction because of the very real fear and anxiety that exists inside of us. That's the results of being in the world. The results of being in Christ, this list was not compiled by me, but I found it helpful, so let me share it with you. The results of being in Christ, in Christ, 2 Timothy 1.9 says, he gave us grace in Christ before the ages began. Being in Christ, you have grace. This is a result or a consequence of being unified with him, given grace. Uh, Ephesians 1.4 says that God chose us in him before the foundation of the world. In Christ, you were chosen by God before creation. Romans 38 and 39 says, I'm sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. In Christ Jesus, you are loved by God with an inseparable love. Ephesians 1.7 says that in Christ we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. In Christ Jesus you were redeemed and forgiven of all your sins. 2 Corinthians 5, 21 says that for our sake, God made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. In Jesus Christ, you are justified before God and the righteousness of God, of, of, of Christ is imputed to you. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. The new has come. Galatians 3.26, in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. In Christ, you have become a new creation and a child of God. That's what it means to be in Christ. Those are the results of being in Christ. To be so locked into him and him so locked into you that what is true of him is true of you. That's what it means to be in Christ. That's what Jesus is praying for you. And those are your choices, the world or Christ. So uh, we're counted to be in Christ, to be unified, to be locked into a relationship with Jesus. The way that we have this, we're counted this way by faith. It's a pretty unique thing to Christianity. Uh, this is not a thing that you can earn. Like you don't have that right. You, you, like you could try but you would never be able to earn it. It's a thing that is only attained by faith. It doesn't matter what you've done. It's by faith. In heaven, I know for a fact that there is a career thief who is dying on a cross next to Jesus, and he says, I believe in this guy. That dude's in heaven right now. Didn't matter what he had done. He said he believed in Christ. I also know for a fact that it doesn't matter what you've done. You could be a pretty good person by current standards. You could be a really good person by current standards, and it does not matter. I guarantee you that there are a lot of people that thought they were very good people that are not in heaven and wouldn't even want to be. It's by faith, open to all. That is how we become unified, united to Christ in this way. Now, don't get me wrong, belief leads to action. There's no doubt about that. When you believe a thing's true, you act on it. Or to put it another way, what you're doing shows what you believe. And what I think stops most people, most of us, from being able to be consecrated to this, to be united to this way of living, is that we just really have trouble seeing it. 
We have, I think, a limited imagination when it comes to this. We are simple, short-sighted, weak, frail creatures that are constantly fixated on ourselves and the immediate. It's not necessarily that that we fixate on bad things in the the immediate. Uh, I think that we fixate on on good things a lot of the times. I think that we that we focus on um, our our family, and and, and it's family's not a bad thing. Or or career works a good thing. It's actually not a consequence of the fall. Uh, The the fact that it's so hard is, but works actually a good thing. We were made for it. Uh, It's not a bad thing. Uh, I think that we think about money again. Not not a bad thing. Our our, our kids. I I know that I have. I'm prone to that, obsessing about my son and, and, and focusing on that or, or a relationship or, or the lack of a relationship. And those aren't necessarily bad things to think about. The problem is we focus on them. We become locked in on them. We become united to them in such a way that they begin to shape us and form us. And the problem is, is that since they, those things aren't designed for our to carry our complete and total the complete and total weight of our need for salvation or escape uh, we end up ruining them and ourselves that's the hidden cost right like if you say that this kid right i'm going to focus all my uh, affection on this then that loss of that kid uh, either through growing up and moving away or, or or the rejection of that love in some way it will devastate you and you having all your hope all your attention all your fixation on this child it will kill the child in the relationship in you in the process. It'll just wear you out because it's not designed for that. Is it a bad thing? No, it's a good thing. But to put it in its proper place, put your marriage in your proper place, your relationship, your singleness, in its proper place, you need to first be united to the thing of, that, is own, that, that can carry that weight. Christ. And so it puts those things in its proper place and actually enables you to love them better. There's this hidden cost to your soul for being in, being united to anything but Christ. I think what stops us people from giving our lives to Christ is that there's this obvious cost. There's a hidden cost in these other things, but in Christ there's this obvious cost. I'm including here uh, people who profess to be Christians, but there's really nothing about their lives that would indicate that they're in Christ. Um, people would say that they're Christians, but their lives look like they're in the world. Um, Jesus doesn't hide the cost. Right? He says up front, if you want to be my disciple, if you want to learn from me how to be in the world, if you want to learn from me how I'm changing the world, if you want to learn from me how to do that with me, to follow me, then you have to pick up your cross and die every single day. That's the cost. Everybody can afford it. (laughs) That we follow him, that we put to death these things. Uh, Jesus says in this passage, he says, look, I've given them my glory. It's a crazy thing. Uh, to understand that, I think we just have to, to look at what he's been saying. What does it mean that he gave them their, his glory? Uh, he's explained to them this whole time that uh, the word, God gave them the word and he gave it to the disciples. He told them their name, what he's like. He's revealed that to the disciples. And then he says now in this section that he's in going to give them the mission that the father gave him. They, that they're going to actually be sent. This mission, this submission and obedience to the Father for Jesus is absolutely 100% the cross. That's what he's talking about when he talks about it. For Jesus, uh, the cross is the greatest glory. He says that it's his greatest glory. 
And we get to experience that, this passage says, now in part, one day in full by this oneness of purpose, the privilege that exists between being united with the Father and the Son in this way, on this purpose, and in the Son's mission, being combined into this thing that he's doing. And Jesus calls us to follow him into that relationship and then into changing the world, which, by the way, way better than what I had planned for this week, to be involved in the actual changing of the world. But here's the thing that I think slows so many of us down, slows me down anyway, is that it's got to be done his way. And Jesus' way repeatedly is the way of the cross. Jesus is committed to seeing us so tied up with him that he goes about killing off the parts of us that are killing us. And to us, this feels like a loss so intense that it's compared to death because those are the parts of us that we usually hold most precious. This is the human condition. In the Bible, there's this idea of blessing, and it's way different than the hashtag blessing stuff that we're used to today. Uh, The idea of blessing in the Bible is... um, well, it starts in Genesis. It's introduced very early, this God-blessing creation, right? God, uh, it's, it's always tied to life and then flourishing in life, like, like abundant life, right? So he's like, he blesses creation. Like it's, it's, it's fruitful and it multiplies. He tells Adam and Eve, be fruitful and multiply. After the flood, he says, no, I go be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth. This idea, these blessings from God are always this idea of filling up with the fruit, the abundance of what he's given us. The problem is, the human condition is, from the very beginning is that we decided that we would like to choose what blessing looks like instead of letting God tell us. This happens in Genesis 3. God has said, listen, here's this garden. You go, you live life. You do the things. It's full of all of these trees that have this fruit. There's one. Don't touch that one or don't eat from that one. But the rest of them, eat as much as you want. Live abundantly. And we as humans decided I think that I have a better idea of what the blessed life is than God. I think I know what abundant life looks like better than him. So they looked at this fruit. The story says that we, they looked at this fruit out of an Eve and said, you know what? Look at it. It's beautiful. Surely God wouldn't want to die, deny me beauty. Look at it. it. It would be good for food. It would nourish me. Surely God doesn't want to deny me nourishment. Look at it. It would make me wise. God even said so. Surely God wouldn't want to deny me beauty and nutrition and wisdom. And so we decided that the blessed life looked like us choosing for ourselves. Now, the biblical narrative tells you what this immediately leads to. Shame. I think it's biblically significant that the next words after they took the fruit and ate of it, realized they were naked. And, biblical, and shame entered the world. That is immediately followed in the next chapter by fratricide, one brother killing another. And it goes on to the genealogies. We find almost immediately the subjugation of women. This famous, this, this, this great verse in one of the genealogies. And Lamech took two lives, two wives. Why? Because he could. That was the blessed life to him. And then it goes on, and it's the, the weak always suffering, the outsiders always suffering. And we keep choosing what looks like the blessed life to us up into this very moment. 
it's, a, it's an eyesight issue. It's a, an imagination issue that we look at a situation and we want to judge with our own wisdom what the, path, what, what the best way to live is, what's good for us, what's going to lead to our own flourishing. And the Bible and the New Testament is full of examples and full of warnings, and the Old Testament as well, of, of warnings against this. Uh, hey, you know what's, what, what's more wicked and, and, and deceitful than anything in the world? The human heart. I, I think about that verse every time. I'm like, I'm just going to follow my heart. I'm like, oh, don't do that. There's an actual verse that says don't do that. Why would you say that out loud? Also, how have you not lived long enough to know that your heart's deceitful above all things and tricks you into all kinds of things? It's tricked me into all kinds of terrible things. It still does it today. It's doing it right now. And so we constantly are tricked and fooled into believing our own eyesight, our own wisdom, our own path. No matter how many times we touch the buzzer and get shocked, we continue to try to choose our own path, thinking that our way is best. And the scriptural wisdom, what Jesus prays for us, is that we would understand that he knows better than us the way to the blessed life. That's where faith leads us. Following Jesus requires what it takes to follow Jesus is giving up on our idea of blessing. And it's terrifying. I know that it is. Giving up our idea of what the rich, blessed life looks like, for me, probably it's like nice homes and vacations and, you know, for a lot of us, like the exact right number of kids, the right car, the right house, the right number in our portfolio. But what I would encourage you to do is to look to Jesus. I, I know it's scary because you might have to live in a smaller house than you actually could. It's scary because you might have to take fewer and smaller vacations. I, I know that's like scary. And I, you might have to adjust your schedule. Like spend time with people that aren't your favorite people. They get things wrong that like different things than you do. You have to give up that grudge and that wound. You have to deal with the wounds that you were given and those that you've inflicted. You have to forgive and ask for forgiveness. You have to get up early. Maybe go to bed earlier. And I'm not making light of these things. Um, I kind of am. But uh, I know that underneath these things that sound simple are actual deaths. Dying to ourselves and dying to what our idea of the blessed life is giving up on what we have. And what I would say is the way forward is to be so focused on Jesus, focused on who he is, focused on what he is offering over and against the world. It's better. Believe his eyesight and stop trusting your own. This is what faith is. And there's real hope in this for the church. It can get depressing reading about scandals constantly, hearing about real wounds that have been inflicted in the past or currently are being inflicted, division, But in these verses, there's real hope. He says that he will continue to do this work in the midst of the church. There's real hope that in Christ, we can have these things. That that, that these things, the faithful are, that God is going to use us in some way, the primary way maybe, that he is shaping the world, that he's he's changing the world, he's preparing the world, that that, that, to, to well, it says that it's by the way that we do these things, by being in Christ and being, being united to one another, that the world will know that he sent us. And so there's real hope that Jesus is not going to stop doing that no matter how short you and I fall. That in these patterns of you hurting me and me hurting you and us forgiving one another, 
in me misunderstanding you and you misunderstanding me and us talking it out and forgiving one another and being focused on Christ above all else that the world knows that he sent us. So what we do then, to be in Christ, it means that this relationship is the thing that's shaping us. It's molding us and we aren't there yet. I think earlier when I said all these things, I was like, oh man, this is so intimidating that to be so locked in on Christ that all these things are happening. They're not happening in my heart, they're not happening in my life, but what it means to be in Christ is not that we've arrived there, but that's what's shaping us. That Jesus is the one growing us, that Jesus is the one moving us, Jesus is the one taking our thoughts and manipulating them and shaping them. Being in Christ means that that's where we're molded. It's what we're submerged in, it's what we swim in. So we breathe. So we have to ask ourselves the question, what, what are you breathing? What, what, are you, what are we swimming in? What holds your attention captive when you get a moment to yourself? And what we seek first is this deep, vital connection with the Father and the Son, comparable to the relationship that they have with each other, so that then we can find our union with each other in the common Christian life. So the earliest... Christians in the church did it this way. Uh, It says they met together constantly to hear the teaching, to share common life, to break bread, and to pray. That's how they did it. That's how they sought this being united. That's how they sought to be in Christ. And that's really absolutely 100% true today. I don't tell you that worship is important and critical. I don't tell you, I don't encourage you to be in a small group. I don't encourage you to serve and to give uh, for any other reason other than it's the way that we become, it's the way that we grow to be more united with Christ. The thing your soul actually desires to help us focus, you helping me, me helping you, us helping each other, to be so focused on Christ that that is what begins to shape us, to be so locked in that the gospel is the formative thing, the thing that consumes us. That's the thing that we're immersed in. That's what our goal here is, making disciples by helping us be more and more united to Christ. Actually, you know what I used to say? That I used to say that, I, that we want to make disciples, helping us uh, trust more and more in Jesus. Here's a, a way that I've been saying it slightly differently. Uh, making disciples, growing in our acknowledgement and our awareness of how deeply dependent we are on Jesus. That's what we're trying to do with worship, with community groups, with small groups, with, with all the things that we do. Our goal is to push us to realize how deeply we need Jesus and how deeply he meets our needs. That's what we do. And when we come and we pray together, and we sing together, and we come in a few minutes and do communion together, this is what we're doing, pointing one another to Christ. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for Jesus. That, that it is through these things that somehow you are changing the world, through these things that seem so insignificant, seem so small, through our singing together and our meeting together, you are changing the world. Through our praying together and being united together, you are changing in the world. Give us courage that you don't invite us into a death of self for any other reason than to give us a better life on the other side. Rob us, please. Take from us our notion of what a blessed life is when it doesn't line up with yours. 
May we see that it's better to give than to receive, to, to serve than to be served. May that be who you make us into. In other words, shape us, make us more like Jesus. Help us see his greatness, his goodness, his beauty. Draw us to you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.